Jesus, we need you so much. We love you. We love the, the spirit of a sonship that you send to us. So just like your father said, this is my beloved son and who I'm well pleased, uh, you can say that about us. And we can have that same relationship with you where we greatly please you by faith. Where when you look at us, you never see disappointment and you never see all the vast and terrible mistakes that we have made. But you see that spirit of your son dwelling inside us. And God, we thank you so much for that. We could never repay you. We could never honor that enough. But Lord, we do surrender our whole lives. We surrender this time. And, and even we surrender our seats in these uncomfortable chairs sometimes. We surrender it to you for, so that our heart can be encouraged and our soul can be uplifted and we can be freed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God does not want you tricked. Jesus does not want you deceived. And the biggest thing that the world, Satan, is trying to get us to understand or to, to be tricked on, they're not getting to, they're not trying to get us to understand it, they're trying to get us to misunderstand is the term, Jesus loves you. God loves you. That is the one thing this world does not want you to understand. That's the one thing Satan will go to the ends of the earth to get you to misinterpret. But it's also the one thing that will get you through every single deception, every single lie, every single challenge, every single trial and suffering that you are going to go through in this life. God loves you is the answer. And it seems so simple. It almost seems ridiculous. In fact, you go out there and you're on the bus or you're riding with someone or you're talking to someone at work and you say, man, I, they're like, I'm, I'm really suffering. And you say, you know what? Jesus loves you. They're like, that doesn't help me at all. You're a goober for telling me that. But they don't understand it. They've been deceived by this world. And we're going to find out how that happens today. So, in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read the first five verses for context, even though we studied them last week. We're going to come back. We're going to pick up in, in verse 6. But the first five verses says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And we, I'll just point out a couple things we hit on last week that were so cool, is that she didn't know the name of the tree, which was a huge deal, because God told Adam the name of the tree, and Adam was a, not a good husband, because he didn't communicate God's heart and the name of the tree to her. She's just like, it's just the tree in the midst over there. One of those, I don't want to touch it even. And then we saw the big lesson last week was the reason why she was ready to fall was because of legalism. Legalism. She thought if she added one more rule, or maybe Adam taught her that if she added one more rule, she would be safe. Don't touch it. When God did not say don't touch it, God wanted her to know the name of it and the reasons why. And because she added this layer of legalism in her life, it caused her to doubt the word of God. Well, God said, don't, don't, don't eat it. But if I add, don't touch it, that's what's going to be good enough for me. 
And it shows a lack of trust in God's simple word. When God says, this is this, we have to trust it. We can't be adding to it. We can't be doing more than what God intended. And that's what prepped her for this fall. It's what prepped her. So the verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we get now to verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and that it was desirable to make one wise. Three things she saw. And so she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Why did Eve make a decision to disobey God? We saw last week it was the legalism that set the stage for her to doubt God's simple word. But how did she get tricked so completely? Just like, I'm in, give me some of that fruit. How did that happen? Well, she was tricked by Satan, the snake, the liar, the manipulator. And that's how he became the ruler of this world, which is his title now. That's how he became, as he tricked her. And now the world bears his fingerprints. All of Satan's fingerprints are all over the deceptions and lies that, are in that, that came about right here. The same strategies. And the whole world bear these fingerprints. In fact, in 1 John 2.16, it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So the same three lies that Satan tricked Eve with are, John says, all throughout the world. And I'm going to link them together for you. I'm going to teach you how you can identify the three separate lies. And guess what? There's only three. There's only three. They're the same ones that he's been using forever. And it's crazy. It's the way Satan tricked Eve in the garden is the same way he's tricking people today, including us. I, all of us are being tricked right now in one, one form or another. And I'm hoping that today's Bible study, today's sermon, will equip us to see it, and to stand against it. Resist the devil and he will free, flee. Amen? Amen. All right. So he's tricking people. He's, he's tricking us. And it's the lust of the flesh, the eye, and the pride of life. So let's look how these two parts of the Bible, this John chapter uh, 1 and, and uh, Genesis chapter 3, let's look at how they go together. It, it said that she took of that forbidden fruit when she saw that the tree was good for food. Good for food. She thought about how good that fruit would taste, how it would satisfy her flesh. And so she went after the lust of the flesh. That's how those two relate. She, it said that she took of the forbidden fruit when she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. She saw how pretty and desirable it was. It pleased her artistic sense, maybe. And she went after the lust of the eyes. But be careful, because your eyes will trick you. And then the third way is it said that she took of the forbidden fruit when she believed that it was desirable to make one wise. How smart this fruit would make her. Her husband would admire her because she figured something out on her own. She went after the pride of life. Pride leads to a fall. So if you guys would turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, we're going we're gonna to see a whole bunch of parallels here in Matthew chapter 4 with the, the lessons that we just learned. So in Matthew chapter 4, we have the story of Satan coming and tempting Jesus. 
in the same way that he tempted Eve, which is the same way he's tempting you and me. The way the Bible puts this together is so amazing. Jesus, though, he provides the way for us to have a victory over any temptation. All three of these varieties of temptation, you could call them, Jesus teaches us right here how we can overcome. If you're ever confused about something, the answer is to get your eyes on Jesus, right? The answer is to get your eyes on Jesus. And if it's about temptation, he brings us the answers. He says, if you want to avoid temptation, look at how I resisted temptation. But his answers are even more than that. He doesn't just give us the answers or the ways to do things. The coolest thing is that he actually is the way. He actually is the power that keeps us from temptation. He doesn't promise to tell you every answer. He doesn't promise that. But he promises to be every answer for us. And that's so wonderful. It's so simple because so many people think, I got to know and I got to understand why I'm having this problem, why I keep stumbling in this area. And sometimes they call into like the radio show or they call, they call their best friend and they say, I just keep falling in this. And that friend says, I have no idea how to help you. But I know if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you will be able to resist that temptation. It will work. It's so simple, they say, there's got to be more. i got to find out why my inner child wants to hit my brother, his inner child. No, it's not about that. We don't have to know why we're evil, wretched sinners. We just have to know that we're evil, wretched sinners and that Jesus loves us anyway. So remember the night that Peter could not stay awake and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, that dark night and Jesus said a very powerful phrase. He said, pray that you might not enter into temptation. Talk to me about it. In other words, a real, genuine, dependent relationship with God through Jesus is the way to overcome all temptation. Before we even get into specifics of how we can counter each of these challenges, it's just Jesus. Not doing push-ups, not putting a little more self-effort in, abiding in the vine, staring at his face. And, and the eyes of the Lord are a burning fire, and it's scary for sure, but just stare at those eyes and all the sin and its appeal will be burned away from our hearts. So we get to Matthew chapter 4, and it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, so, so right now we see Jesus investing in his relationship with the Father, fasting, staying away, even denying himself food, his, his nourishment, so that just because he cared so much about being near to the Father, He's investing, so he's going to be ready. Now, when the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up on a holy city and set him up on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written again, 
you shall not tempt your God. And then the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So the same three temptations that Eve got and, this, and how John describes them as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, we can equate them with these three temptations in the same order again. The Bible's so simple. The Bible's so clear. Let's see how he does this. The lust of the flesh, Satan is like, feed your flesh. Isn't your flesh hungry? But Jesus' answer to that temptation is life is actually sourced from the word of God. Satisfaction comes through it. Physical life is nourished by bread, but it does you no good if you're dead on the inside. That's Jesus' answer. She, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, that her flesh would be nourished. And Satan tempts us by offering comfort, sensual pleasures, satisfaction, or beauty. And our flesh likes it. Our flesh desires it. Our flesh is tempted by it. But it's never satisfied. Because Jesus says, the only thing that really satisfies me is my Father who I just spent 40 days with. And I've spent my whole life communing with. That's the only thing. Satan, your bread doesn't even tempt me right now because I know I will only be satisfied with my Father. I know he's the source of all satisfaction. Everything that our flesh is tempted with is like a drug. It never completely satisfies. The high always fades. You always need more. That's what the devil offers, your first joint of the world. The lust of the flesh means you always want more, and it's never as good the second time as it was the first time, and the third time as it was the second time. It never satisfies as much. But real life, real satisfaction only comes through Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. Jesus said, the Word of God. That's where it's at. As Lecrae puts it, I know I'm sick and my addiction got me itching. Every day I need a fixin' and I ain't quitting till it kill me. I know the feel, but I hate the taste of the product like the numb on the tongue when you taste narcotics. I know that they don't want it, that they don't, that I can't read rap lyrics, I guess. Yeah, we're grasping for the emptiness, hoping we can catch something. Hands full of scars, cuts, and burns as the flesh wants. The verge of insanity stop me for I'm gone. I'm saying I'm going to quit, but I'm back at it in the morning. It goes on and on and on, and now I'm used to it. This is a lifestyle now, and I don't, think, I don't know what else to do. Got a war inside my soul, and it's wanting to break, though. It's a great description of that desire to quit, but your flesh just is like, give me more. Give it to me one more time. I'll stop after the next one. And Jesus is like, no. Only the word of God will satisfy. Only the word of God will do that. Then we get to the second temptation, the lust of the eyes, John calls it. It's appealing to the eyes, but again, your eyes will trick you. 
Satan tells Jesus, it would be awesome for everyone to see how much God loves you and, and, and will save you even if you throw yourself down. He, he says also, he says, do you see another way than what God has planned? Do you see another way? The lust of the eyes. It's, it's saying, I see a better way than God says. A better way than God's way of doing things. God is not perfect and I could do something else, right? I mean, why does he say it this way? Isn't there another way I could do it? And that's the tricky part of the lust of the eyes is because it will look like you could do something else. It will look like there's another valid option. But Jesus is saying, no, no. And he gives us an answer. He says, don't tempt the Lord your God, which is a very interesting answer. And so we need to investigate what that answer means. And it's from Exodus chapter 17 is, is where that answer comes from. A good rabbi would always say that just the beginning or just a quote from a passage of scripture that he wanted his students, his little rablets, to, to go and explore and go and find and go and, and dive into the word. Riblets, maybe we'll call them. Anyway, this is in Exodus chapter 17. So he says, in that story, he says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. And uh, there was no water for the people to drink. Okay, so get the story. They are, God tells them, get going. So they start walking. It's according to the commandment. So God has asked them to go. Okay? but they're going to be tempted by the lust of their eyes. They are following the Lord, but they're met with a challenge. Things are not what they expected. They are now not too sure at all that God knows what he's doing because God told him to go this way, and over here there's no water. So that couldn't be what God wanted for me. God called me to follow him, but all of a sudden people are dying in my family, or I don't have a job anymore, or why are these challenges in front of me? Why? Is God upset? Is God angry with me? You know, if I'm looking at this situation, it looks like to me, to my eyes, that I made a wrong turn, that God has somehow made a mistake. Verse 2, therefore the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink, Moses. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Moses gets it. He knows that they don't trust that God's way is the best way. They want another way, one that takes better care of them, they think, and, and they first go to him to find out if Moses is that other way. They're like, Moses, you're pretty cool. I mean, you took us out of the whole, the whole Prince of Egypt thing and, you know, the waters and the plagues and all. You're pretty cool. We know that you got something going on. Are you, are you it? Because God obviously has forsaken us. God obviously doesn't know what he's doing because we're thirsty. Ah! So they check and see, Moses, can you give us water? Can you give us what we need, the thing we desperately desire? And Moses is like, nope. Why are you asking me? Verse 3, then the people thirsted there for water. 
And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So now they're just acting like teenage girls, just overreacting. No offense to any teenage girls in here. Well, so they realize now that Moses is not another way. God brings them to the end of their options. And so verse 4, Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some elders of Israel and take in your hand your rod which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. God will provide. He will provide. He gave, and he provides in, in crazy ways. No one would ever think water would come out of a rock, right? The people aren't wrong for seeing the situation. Just like you're not wrong for thinking, I don't have a job right now. That's not wrong. That's not a lack of faith to, to say your situation. I, my life sucks right now. I have a difficult challenge right now. All valid statements. But the thing is, the faith that God will provide, that God is going to do it. He gave them water at the right time. He didn't let them die. They thought he was going to let them die, but he didn't let them die. And he never has let them die. And he never will let them just die like that. And then he didn't give them water because they were complaining. He gave them water in spite of the fact that they were complaining, in spite of their doubt. He does it amazingly with a picture of Jesus. In fact, Hebrews says that Jesus was the rock that was hit by Moses. God said, here, I will stand before you and then hit the rock. God's saying it's a picture of me being struck to provide for you the things that you need. So God's way always ends with Jesus being struck and producing what we need through that act. Always. But I'm suffering right now. I'm going through difficulties right now. I'm struggling right now. So, God is going to give you what you need. How? Through Jesus on the cross. It never works another way. It always is the same. That's the lesson for us and the people of Israel back then. God is going to provide. So verse 7, so he called the name of that place Massa, which means tempted in Hebrew. And Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel. Meribah means contention. And because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So to tempt the Lord is to try to find with your eyes another way of what doing, getting whatever thing accomplished other than Jesus. What should they have done? They were wandering in the desert. They're thirsty. God, would you provide for us and then trust him? That's what they should have done. Just wait for Jesus to do his work in your situation. Keep coming to him and trusting him in him because your eyes will trick you. There is no other way. If your marriage sucks, I'm sorry. But there is no other way than Jesus. You can't be, just say, I'm going to be a better husband. 
No, you got to get up and do your devotions and spend time with him and repent and trust him. That's the only way. Wives, you can't manipulate or, or nag your husbands. It does not accomplish the things of God in your marriage. It doesn't work that way. Only Jesus on the cross and that living relationship with him works. It o- that's the only thing. Eve was tricked because the fruit looked like a legitimate option. It looked pleasant, she said. Just like sin looks like a real option, but it's not. Now we get to the third, which is the pride of life, which means you can earn it on your own without being obedient to God. That's what Jesus teaches us. That you you can say you did it without any help or without God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, and this is Jesus' solution, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. One little act, Jesus, that's all it takes And you can have everything your heart desires because Jesus, what does his heart desire? Every kingdom. He desires every man. He loves them so much. He cares about them. His heart grieves that they're not with him. He wants them so badly. And Satan knows that. And Satan tries to trick him and say, just do it my way. Just do it my way. And and Jesus shows us how to overcome. Satan says, you don't have to be obedient. Just do things my way and I'll come through for you. Why is this wrong? Because God is to be worshipped and served, Jesus says. Him alone. Because he is an infinite God, he is infinitely worthy to be worshipped and loved. And worshipping and serving God is more important than anything you want. Even Jesus wanting to be with us, worshipping God is more important. God is that great. God is that wonderful that nothing else matters. And if we do anything before that, It's going to fail. It's going to be sin. Worshiping and serving God is more important. More important than anything you need. It's like the air to your brain. There is no life without the oxygen's continual supply. The the pride of life is when pride gets in the way. It's like holding your breath and not experiencing the life that God has for you. Pride is that. Saying, I don't need God. I don't need to do things his way. Eve said, "I, I could be smart. She she said, there's another way, and look how wonderful I'm going to look. It was her pride. There's a story as told of two ducks and a frog who live happily in a farm together, in a pond, you know. And they were the best of friends, and the three would amuse themselves and play together in the water hole. Then one hot summer day came, you know, and the pond began to dry up, and soon they they realized that they were going to have to move. And this was no problem for the ducks, who could easily fly to another pond, but the frog was stuck. So it was decided that they would put a stick in the bill of each duck and the frog could hang onto it with his mouth as they flew to another pond. The plan worked well. So well, in fact, that as they were flying along, the farmer looked up with admiration and wondered, well, isn't that a clever idea? I wonder who thought of that. And the frog said, I did. Pride leads to a fall. Always remember the frog now when you... When you hear pride leads to fraud. Okay, back in Genesis, they've sinned now. Well, Eve, Eve has been tricked. She, she ate the fruit. Adam now ate the fruit too. We talked about him last week thinking he was a man that could handle the consequences of sin. 
he obviously could not. So now we get to verse 7. The eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. When we sin, we immediately know that we're wrong, and that's called shame. And usually we do exactly what Adam does here, and we try to fix our problem ourselves. Using whatever resources we can find around us, we form and fashion something that can cover up our mistakes. Adam used fig leaves, which are an itchy solution, <laughs> and they fall apart rather easily, but it's the best he could do. And his solution wasn't a good one. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't sufficient to cover all the parts that need covering. And it didn't take away the shame. It didn't really fix the problem. And this speaks to us of our efforts to fill a spiritual deficit by the works of the flesh. Fear, anger, shame, loneliness, guilt are all areas of spiritual deficit. And they can only be changed by the Spirit. But we so often first try to fix those things with our efforts. Just try harder. Just buck up. Just calm down. Just be more friendly. Just be better. Just do more. Add more rules. Give more. Sow some more fig leaves. Use the bigger fig leaves. This tree over here has different fig leaves. Poison ivy? No. When we spend more time looking at what we do than what Jesus did, we're going in by our efforts. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve knew that God would be coming, that God would want to be close to them. But they hid themselves. They chose to uh, flee from relationship rather than deal with the consequences right away. Which isn't that what we see in our own lives, that sin always ruins relationships. It always convinces us that we're better off on our own. Apart from the Lord, sin brings that separation. There's this great song by Don Francisco, who's this... 60s hippie Jesus singer guy, songwriter. And it's called Adam, Where Are You? And I, you should look it up on YouTube because it's awesome. And, you know, he's, he's got his long hair and his big beard and he's singing. And he's, he talks about the story of Adam sinning. And, and, he, and he, he had the chorus says, Adam, Adam, where are you? And, and it's a great song. So you got to listen to it. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord God called Adam and said, Adam, where are you? Here's the love and the mercy of God. Even though Adam is rejecting him, it, he starts to draw Adam back. The first step to coming back to the Lord is admitting your fault. Or, as God puts it, where you're at. Where are you at? Where are you, Adam? This is not an interrogation. This is the heartfelt cry of a father. God wants Adam back. And so verse 10, so he said to him, I, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said to him, who told him that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? So God asked Adam a very direct question. Have you sinned? Have you sinned? 
His clothes weren't his problem. God's not like, what are you wearing, dude? His hiding wasn't his problem. Where were you? We were playing hide and seek, and I couldn't find you. You won. His wife wasn't his problem. His sin was his problem. And God wanted Adam to repent right there. But then man said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the tree and I ate. So he blames his wife and God. He said, yeah, this is really your fault. He doesn't understand that repentance is beautiful and it's a thing that restores relationship. He doesn't know that he can trust God. He doesn't believe he can trust God. And it always comes back to the man. That's why God always starts with Adam. Then God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she's totally truthful. Nothing weird about what she said. She's like, I was deceived and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and the woman's seed, your, your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this, again, is not talking about the snake that actually deceived, it's about Satan, and God would totally defeat Satan is what he's saying. It's like, Satan, you really messed things up, but I'm going to kick your butt. That's going to be the end of the story. It's going to be a long war, but Jesus will destroy him. And this is actually the first mention of the gospel. If you, if you study theology, it's called the Proto-Evangelicum, which means it's the first mention of the gospel. That God would take care of business is really what it means. That's the gospel. God's going to take care of business. He's going to beat down Satan for you. And God now curses the snake's beauty and his usefulness. And that's exactly what happens to a life committed to sin. There is no more beauty in it. And its usefulness goes way down. There's no doubt that this is a prophecy of Jesus' ultimate defeat of Satan. God announces that Satan would wound the Messiah. He says, you shall bruise his heel, but the Messiah would crush Satan with a mortal wound. He would crush your head, or bruise your head, he says. So now we get to Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in your, in your conception, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So girls, blame Eve. That's all I'll say. It's harder for a woman to see the, the blessings in their marriage because it's a challenge to let their husbands lead. That's what this curse is. It's hard for them. And God curses her blessings. Life is just no fun when you're committed to sin, and neither is your marriage. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and you have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And in sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground out of which you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So he gets cursed by hard work, and death now enters the world. Conflict and sorrow, 
God curses his freedom in his life. Now he has to work all the time. Work, work, work. Basically everything is cursed. And that's what happens to a life committed to sin. Curse. And what happens to a life that won't repent? Blessings can't flow now. It's got to be curses. But the most amazing thing, and if you don't remember anything of anything we've talked about today, remember this. Jesus fixes this. Jesus redeems every part of the curse mentioned. Sin brought pain to childbirth. And all the ladies say amen. But no one knew more pain than Jesus did when he, through his suffering, brought many sons to glory. He spiritually gave birth, you could say, to all of us. But it was through pain as well, right? But he redeems that. Sin brought conflict, but Jesus endured great conflict to bring us our salvation, it says. Sin, you know, thorns came when sin, came, when sin entered the world and, and the fall, and Jesus endured a crown of thorns to bring our salvation. Sin brought sweat to Adam's brow, it says, but Jesus sweat, as it were, great drops of blood to bring us our salvation. Sin brought sorrow, and Jesus became a man of sorrows and acquainted, acquainted with br- grief, it says in Isaiah 53. Sin brought death, but Jesus tasted death for everyone that we might be saved. So yes, God brings a curse upon sin, but he never brings a curse that he himself is not willing to take for us because of his infinite love for you and me. People think it's unfair that we lived in a cursed world. People think that there's some sort of unrighteousness with God because of the curses that we endure. When someone dies, people are like, why God? And it's a big struggle for us. But the truth is, that God loves you. And even his curses, even his curses are an avenue to which he can show us his love. Because he takes greater than your curse upon him. Whatever you're going through, he took more upon him. So you said, I have been through a lot of bad stuff. You might say that. I've been through this, and I was this, and this happened to me too. And Jesus would say, I know, but I love you more. I love you more, and I have done more, and I've experienced more so that I can redeem you out of that curse. So I can bring what you really need, which is me, so that we can be together. It says in Hebrews, we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because he was, what? Tempted in every way that we are. He was tempted, but he never sinned, but yet he took the curses that our sin deserved and brought upon the world. He took them all and he bore them on his, in himself to show us that he's never going to leave you, never going to forsake you, and that he loves you. 
And the whole world, if they would understand that these curses show that God loves us. It's about God's love. Every challenge that you're going through, it's because God loves you. Every single one. Well, that's probably about as much as our hearts can handle today. So let's all stand up. We're going to sing a song to close here. And as we, as we just uh, begin to sing right now and just close our service, Lord, we, uh, we come to you and we pray. And God, we pray that every temptation we would see in its accurate form, which is it's just a, a, an opportunity to doubt your love. And God, I pray that your love would be preeminent. Your love would overcome every part of our life. Every temptation, I pray, would fade away as we stare at your eyes of love. And God, I pray that there would be a, a great revival in our hearts. And I pray that if there's, if there's anyone here who has never accepted you as their Lord and their Savior and accepted the fact that you love them and believed that fact with all their heart and that you would substitute yourself for their curse, I pray that they would do that now and just say, Lord, I believe. I believe that you love me. And that there will always be that love. And it is greater than everything I see in this world. I pray, Lord, that your love would increase in our hearts. And God, that we would be more committed. God, that everything that is not about your love in our life, that we would lop it off like an appendage that's no longer needed. Because God, all we need is you. Jesus, we love you in response to what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.